were 430 of them and seven that are not. That word is a very, very interesting word. It is Yeshua in the Hebrew. God is salvation. He was trying to give us a little glimpse, a little view that God would indeed bring salvation to mankind. He never intended for a sacrificial system of man's doing to be the way that we come to Christ. And so, as David crying out here, we will rejoice in who? Your salvation. As God sends his salvation to us, he never intended us to earn it. Grace is right here in Psalms. And so, we pray that the Lord would continue to minister to us. Let's ask the Lord to bless the service this morning with regard to his word. Father, this morning, as we look at this most Jewish of all the Gospels, as we open our Bibles and simply begin at the beginning of the New Testament, Lord, as you wrote through this marvelous example of your grace, Matthew, all of these things that would point us towards the coming King, the Messiah, Father, that he, in fact, did come and did offer his life up as a sacrifice for ours, just as the prophet Isaiah said he would. Lord, that we would lay hold of it. And, Father, that this morning we would be strengthened in our faith to believe that you have intended all along, from the very beginnings of man's history, to bring us into a relationship with you by one way and one way alone, and that is through your grace. Father, we thank you, we praise you, we bless you, and ask now that you would anoint your word as it goes out, that it would go out in power and in truth, Lord, changing our lives, that we might live for you. We ask these things in the blessed name of Jesus, our Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, beginning of the New Testament, sometimes when they... We'll talk about the New Testament, we'll talk about the four Gospels, and and often we'll throw in the word there, synoptic, meaning that they are are meant to be taken together. As we're going to begin here in Matthew chapter 1 this morning, I want to remind you that there are various events recorded in each one of the Gospels that are unique. Some people get into a lot of problems when they begin to try and dissect the four Gospels and make them so they have to absolutely say the same thing in the same passage of Scripture. We are going to come to a very famous passage that many people will use to say that the Bible is not without error, that there are indeed great errors in it, because here in this genealogy that we're going to see in the very beginning of Matthew chapter 1, It's not the same genealogy that we find in Luke's gospel. It's a very different genealogy. And so, one of the things I want to tell you this morning is make sure in your understanding, as we open up our minds this morning to the Lord to speak to us, that we understand just as we would write with meaning and purpose... So did the gospel writers write with meaning and purpose. As they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, Matthew was trying to say something different than Luke said. We want to put it into perspective. Matthew was a publican, or at least under the rule of a publican. He was a tax collector, but he was also a Jew. And so because he was a Jewish tax collector, he would have been extremely hated by the Jewish people. The Jews would have looked at him and said, that guy's a turncoat. He, he's, you know, he's a traitor. He's gone over to the Roman side, and now he's collecting taxes. And so as Matthew would be used of the Lord to lay down his gospel, one of the chief things that he does is he presents to us, in a way that no other gospel author did, the picture of Jesus as the Messiah, the fulfillment of those whom the Old Testament prophets prophesied about, and those whom the Old Testament authors spoke about, that's the guy. And you see, Matthew, having that Jewish perspective, understanding the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the five books, the first books of the Bible, he would have known those. He would have understood them. He would have had a great grasp of Jewish history. 
he would have been able to recite, no doubt, chronologically, many of the events that were laid out that should have been fulfilled in the life of the Messiah. And so as we come here to Matthew chapter 1, we need to bear that in mind. There is a very specific reason for Matthew writing this gospel. Matthew's name, in fact, means gift of God, or gift of Yahweh, to be exact. And so when we look at Matthew as he writes, he writes in the context of this incredible gift, the Messiah, that would come to mankind through the life of Jesus Christ. Matthew's listed as one of the apostles, and so we know that he was very close to the Lord. If you look at the chronological order, he's listed someplace in the four Gospels between the seventh and the eighth apostle. As you start naming off all of those guys. And so he's considered in amongst those guys that hung around Jesus. He was really a customs officer. That's what he actually was. He was one of those guys, as people would come in, he would register where they came from. He would have naturally known and had a mindset to keep great lists. It was part of his daily function. Rather be like if someone in this room was an accountant, and and we came to you and said, you know, we'd like to make a new church directory. Would you mind overseeing that? That would be a wonderful person to give that task to. They would already be familiar with keeping records that were extremely accurate. You see, Matthew's very life depended on him being accurate. Because when he went back to answer to the people whom he would have to answer to, and ultimately to Herod Antipas, he would have to be accurate. If they came, oh, well, there's what about these 20 people living over here in Nazareth? You missed them. You see, Matthew would have had a, a mind for numbers. He would have been a guy that would have been great at keeping lists and detail. It's why we find in Matthew's Gospel this incredible detail of the events of Jesus' life that we find nowhere else in the rest of the four Gospels. Matthew is the most explicit with regard to the details of life of the Messiah. When we get to his account of the Beatitudes, it's the most in-depth. When we look at his rendering of all of those events of the life of Jesus as he's instructing the apostles, it's the most in-depth. And so we get this wonderful picture of this man who's being used of the Lord, if you will, to bring us to an understanding of who Jesus of Nazareth really was. And so as we dig into this, when the first thing that we see in Matthew chapter 1 is this incredible genealogy, we can understand that there was a reason and a purpose for Matthew to write this. It wasn't just some boring list of names that comes here in the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel. It was absolutely the the most incredible piece of information you could have handed to someone who wanted to know whether Jesus was truly the Messiah was being able to relate him back to David. Because if you could could bring him back to an, an attachment to David, then you could take him back to Abraham. If you could take him back to Abraham, you could take him back to the Old Testament writers of the book of Isaiah and Genesis, by the way, which we'll look at today, and see that that is exactly the tribe that the Messiah would have to come from. And if you can't prove that, then Jesus was not the Messiah. And so the very first thing that Matthew is going to establish for us is his credentials. Matthew's going to tell you and I, so that when we go to the authority of Scripture, and someone asks, well, how do you know that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? You know, one of the chief ways that we can know that the Bible is the inspired Word of God is that it is without error. Now, if there's prophecy in here and it's wrong, it's not without error, is it? Well, as... Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and he included in there, in Genesis chapter 49, that the scepter would not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. That prophecy meant that the governing rule of all of Israel would lay on the tribe, one tribe, the tribe of Judah, that lineage from which David would ultimately come from and Jesus would ultimately come from, if you can simply prove that Jesus didn't come from that tribe, then you know what? The Bible's a farce. It's over before it starts. There's no need to go through the rest of all of it. We can simply say, hey, 
you said, boom, there it is. It's why we can look a Mormon in the eye and say, you know what? I'm sorry, I love you in Jesus Christ, but your religion is based on false prophecies. And thereby it's not true. It could not have come from an omniscient, omnipotent God who knows the beginning from the end. It's simply made up by man. And you know what? That man was wrong when Joseph Smith prophesied that there would be men living in the sun and on the moon and there would be these huge cities that would be built in the northern half of the United States. They would be inhabited by millions of people and we find no archaeological record of them. We now have a false prophet. And if your religion is hanging on a false prophet, if your relationship with God is hung on false prophecies, then guess what? You have a serious problem. And that is why this genealogy that's listed here in Matthew chapter 1 is so important to you and I. Because it says there will be one person. One. Not many. Not a whole group of people. But one person who will come. And it will be from a very specific tribe. Under the rulership of one king. that King David. Through him the Messiah will come. And if you can blow that out of the water, then you know what? Jesus is not real. And I'll stand with you this morning. We'll just say, Jesus isn't real. This is a farce. Let's all go home and watch football. Because if you can prove that Jesus cannot be traced back to David's throne, then he is not both the king and the Messiah. And he's got to be both. He can't just be the king and not the Messiah. And he can't just be the Messiah and not the King. And so, laid out here very early on is that fact. I also want to remind you, this, this gospel was written very, very, very early, extremely close to the events, probably in AD 60 or so. That is extremely close to the life of Christ. Matter of fact, you and I, when we look at books that are written, biographies and those types of things, very rarely are they written within 30 years of the events that are described within the book, are they? They're normally written after that person passes on. Usually those biographies are written much later, after all of the events can be collected. Matthew, being a man of numbers, a man of lists, most certainly would have known that he wanted to get all of the information. And so as he's out there under the influence of the Holy Spirit, talking to these eyewitness events, the, the, the eyewitnesses to those events around the life of Jesus, he would, have, he would have been collecting that and then under the influence of the Holy Spirit, assembling it so that you and I could understand it. It's also very important for us to understand that he was writing to Jews. They are the most, and I have a very close friend who's a Jew. Very close friend. One of my dearest friends in the whole world is a completed Jew. And so when I talk to him and we talk about the Messiah, you know what, if there were a way to disprove what we believe, he would have, he's also an attorney. And so he would have picked this apart. He's the type of guy we could have gone to Matthew's Gospel and gone, oh, well, it blew it right here. But it, it can't be done. And so we're, we're understanding this was written to the Jewish people. If you can convince a Jew that Jesus is the Messiah, you're doing really, 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 really well. Because they don't want to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so Matthew sets out in his letter the direct attack on those that would have said Jesus wasn't the Messiah. He was trying to say to them, I'm a Jew, I'm going to write to Jews, and I'm going to give you proof positive that Jesus is who he said he was. The King of the Jews. The theme of this book, and I, I have already said this, is this. It ties together the Old Testament and the New. It, of the four Gospels, this one does it the best. They all do it in part, but Matthew's Gospel does it the best. That's why there's so much quotation of the Old Testament within Matthew's Gospel. He's trying to remind everybody, hey, you guys, you know what? The one that we've been hearing about in our oral tradition, the one who's been spoken about in our synagogues, that one who was supposed to come according to the writings of Moses... Not according to these, these guys wandering around in the Judean foothills, 
But remember when Moses said, Whom shall I say sent me? And speaking out of that bush, Jesus himself told them, I am that I am. I am who I am sent you. The future, the present, and the past tense of the verb to be. I have always been, I continue to be, and I will be in the future. You're God. I am that I am. Tell them that. Matthew's going to give us that case. He's going to say, that's the one. Matthew's going to lay that out for us. You'll also notice as we go through Matthew that he very often speaks of Jesus as the son of David. Jesus, the son of David. He's always drawing us back. He's saying, guys, Jews, fellow countrymen, believers in Christ, we're all together under the banner of the Messiah. And he goes, he goes on to lay it out in a way that we can understand it. Possibly the key verse in all of the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to give it to you today because you can underline it, you can highlight it, and then we're going to go back and prove it as we start today. 2-2. Two, two. You know who speaks these words. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Where is he who's the king? These guys knew it. The Magi knew who they were looking for. They had heard the same exact thing. When you look at the life of Abraham, you realize that Abraham is a key character in almost every Near Eastern religion. He is considered either a prophet or one of their saints. Whether you want to look at Islam or Muhammadism, whether you want to look at Hinduism, doesn't matter what you look at, you're going to find that Abraham is a revered character in all. And so here come these guys out of Media Persia, the area probably of Iraq and Iran, and they come and say, where's the king of the Jews? We have known these guys who lived out in the boonies someplace, in their foreign lands where they had heard this king was going to come. He's here. And we've come to worship him. It's a key to us because we find out through Matthew's gospel that's exactly what transpires in the lives of the Gentiles. The Gentiles end up with no problem. See, we, we, we now know he's come. It's obvious to us. And so Matthew now is going to make a case for the Jewish people. Some of the key characteristics that we'll find in Matthew's Gospel as we go through it, that's not in chronological order, but rather topical. Exactly how most of the works that you and I would read today are normally organized. Very, very often we'll talk in topical ways. We don't necessarily give things in chronological order. Another thing that people will do to try and dissect and say that the gospel is not true, that the Bible is not true. Well, they're not in chronological order. Well, you and I very often don't tell things in chronological order either. We tell them so that they make sense. Certain events need to be told chronologically. But if I'm going to make a case and I want to present to you a case and we're in court together and I want you to understand my point, I'm going to give it to you in topical order with from the greatest to the least importance normally. And so Matthew does that. He's going to lay these things out for us in a topical arrangement. He does this by breaking it down into several different portions, which we'll look at in a moment. The second thing that we're going to see about Matthew's gospel is it's the gospel of the king. It presents a greater than no other work in all of the New Testament the Messiahship of Jesus. And I want to remind you that you all and myself, we are grafted in Jews. We have received the inheritance that was supposed to be theirs because we have believed in the Messiah. And so Jesus being the Messiah is very important to us as well. It's not just something that is a Jewish issue. 
But it is rather an issue for all of us in the body of Christ. Because if we can't prove that he was and is the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one whom Paul said he's going to be the name under which every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. If he indeed is not the Messiah, then he cannot save. Very Jewish gospel. The other thing that's unique to Matthew's gospel is he writes in incredible discourses, whole lumps, if you will, of material. He breaks down his gospel into very digestible pieces of information that fit together topically. And so it's a, it's a gospel of incredible discourses. And there are five of them that are chief. The Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see that. We'll go through it from chapters 5 to 7. As he teaches the apostles there in chapter 10, he gives them very specific teachings with regard to them and them alone. He gives us the parables of the kingdom. He will go on to explain life in God's kingdom, how it will be when the Messiah does in fact finally rule and reign. And then as all of you know, and we'll be certainly attaching this to our Revelation study, Matthew also lays out the end of the world. He tells us what's going to happen in those end days. And so it's an exciting book for us to be studying in these times that we live in. Because, you know, one of the things that comes into question virtually every day in your walk and in my walk as we go out in the world is, well, how do you know that Jesus is real? Well, let me explain a couple things to you. We're going to look at three of them today. Because one of the key things that you can go back to them is, you know what? If, if I could tell you with 100% accuracy what's going to happen 700 years from now, would you say there's something abnormal about me? 100% accuracy. If, if I could name you a single child that's going to be born in a land that doesn't yet have its name, but I can name that land for you ahead of time, and then tell you where he's going to be born... Furthermore, I can tell you his name, what his name's going to be born, when he's born. And then I can predict for you the exact date that he's going to ride into Jerusalem. You think that would impress him? Matthew does that. He links us back to the book of Isaiah, back to the book of Genesis, back to Exodus. And so as, as those prophecies were spoken by this Old Testament author, Matthew now says, you know what? This is what they were talking about. This is what they were trying to say to you as those things were unveiled before your eyes. The messianic theme is all throughout this gospel. The fulfilled prophecies of the Messiah are basically the first four chapters. We're going to see how Matthew lays those things out. It's just, you got a problem with his messiahship, then you have a problem with the Old Testament. You don't have a problem with me today. You've got a problem with your own writings. You have a problem with prophecy. When Moses said, there will be one that will come who is greater than me. I'm going to tell you, he's already been here. And here's why. He's also going to teach the kingdom parables, the, king, the parables of the Messiah. He's also going to teach us about the deity of the Messiah. Very, very important, because if Jesus is not God, then he's not the Messiah. If you can disprove either one, the whole thing flies out the window. He's got to be both. He has to be God. That is why it was so important. When, when the Jews came to stone Jesus, why did they do that? Because they said he claimed to be God. And you know what statements they used to base that accusation on? He said he was the I Am. And so they went back to the Old Testament and said, Hey, he's saying that, that he's the I Am that was there with Moses. And so if that could not be proved, if Jesus could have said those statements and then he'd go back and say, Well, he's not, you know, he's not one of David's kin. Oops. Now you got one right, one wrong. 50% average does not work for God. It's got to be 100%. 
And so you're going to see how this messianic view goes throughout this entire book. And it will be so incredibly uplifting to us because we realize, you know, it's easy to pick out large portions of Scripture and go, yeah, this is fulfilled. When we look at the birth of Christ, you know, we all have our Christmas cards there with with all of the, the biblical sayings on there. And behold, a child shall be born this day in the city of David. But you know what? That was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was just being repeated through Matthew and through Luke. We'll see the redemption of the Messiah, how he will come and claim his own. The Great Commission. The Passion of the Messiah. It's interesting that Matthew in his Gospel chooses his arguments... In a, in a way that they are very, very pointed towards the Jewish people. If you can do that. Now remember, if you and I were sitting in this room, and we had a, a whole synagogue full of people come in and join us, and they're sitting here, they would look at these scriptures through Jewish eyes, wouldn't they? As they're reading the New Testament, would they, would they really care all that much about the writings of Paul if they had to throw out the whole of the Old Testament to do it? No, they wouldn't, would they? And so it's very critical that someplace in the New Testament, the two Testaments get tied together. And that's what Matthew's Gospel does. It brings us to that place when we can look back and he reminds us, you know what? The prophet Isaiah said. And he quotes it. Moses said. And then he quotes it. And so when we look, we we now have the whole assembled for us. It's also very, very important that there not be one detail left in all of Scripture where the life of the Messiah was prophesied and it is not fulfilled. You realize if we could go to the Old Testament and someplace in there it said that Jesus was supposed to come from near the river Euphrates and we can't validate that. He is no longer the Messiah. And so Matthew takes very great detail to go back and every single thing that could be brought into question, he says, here's where it is, guys. Here's where it happens. Turn over to Matthew chapter 16. I want to just briefly touch here, and then we're going to look at Matthew 1.1. Probably the central point of all of this, and we'll probably not get back to this verse for six months or more. And so we're going to look at it today. Because I want you to realize exactly how important this messianic theme is. Matthew 16, verse 13. We're going to look at verse 13 through 16. And when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who? Do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He asked them a question. He says, who do they say that I am? What do people, when they ask about me, what, who is it that they credit me with being? Now, notice the response here, okay? Very, very important as Peter responds. And so they said... Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, when you're writing to Jewish people, they skipped around absolutely everything that Jesus could have been. Notice nowhere in that statement, who do they say that I am? They knew he was a great guy. They listed him with Jeremiah, one of the prophets, Elijah. He's like one of those, but you know what isn't in that statement? None of them were saying you're the Messiah. And so Matthew's gospel is our proof text. He's going to lay that out. Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. You're the anointed one. You are the Messiah, Lord. The Son of the living God. 
that is chiefly what's going to be proven as we go through Matthew's gospel. Jesus indeed was the Messiah. He fulfilled the writings of the prophet Isaiah. He met all of those criteria in their totality. Not one stone was left unturned. Matthew 1.1. We're going to look down through verse 17 today again. And I want to remind you that we need to take some of these things in rather large chunks because they fit together. You cannot disassociate the genealogy of all these people. We could look at the life of Uzziah. We could look at the life of Hezekiah. We could make a study out of his name if we wanted to. We're not going to do that because this genealogy is given here so that we can trace Jesus' lineage back to King David. Again, remember the reason that Matthew writes this as the Holy Spirit inspires him. Matthew 1.1 The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Notice again how careful he is to list all of the criteria necessary for Jesus to be the Messiah. First, he is Jesus Christ. He is Yeshua, my salvation. He is Jesus Christ. one who brings it. And so here in Matthew 1.1, we get the absolute definition of what Matthew is trying to do here. The son of David. If he's not David's son, then there are a number of prophecies, and we're going to look at them in a moment. If he's not David's son, then we have a huge problem. If he's not the son of Abraham we have a huge problem. So look what he says. He divides this genealogy up into three specific segments. The first one being 14 people that can trace him back to Abraham. The second, 14 people that can be traced back to David. And then finally, taking all the way up until the time of his birth. And so we have three specific groups of 14 people Obviously not all of those generations, but sufficient numbers of people that you could trace all of the heritage clear back to David the king and ultimately back to Abraham so that prophecy could be fulfilled. Abraham begot Isaac and Isaac Jacob and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers and Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram and Ram begot Aminadab, and Aminadab begot Nation, and Nation begot Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. And so the first thing that we see is tracing his lineage so that David can be linked back to the Abrahamic covenant. If David is not an heir to that covenant, if David can't be traced back to Abraham, then now we have a yet further problem. It gets worse. And so the first thing that Matthew does is he shows us that we can trace David's roots back to Abraham. Because remember, Abraham was given the promise that through him, through his seed, the Messiah would come. And so the first thing that Matthew does, he said, don't worry about it, even though I'm going to focus that he belongs to David's lineage, I want you to also realize that we can take him all the way back to Abraham. So that when he comes, he's not only going to fulfill the new covenant, he's going to fulfill the old covenant as well. And he goes on and says that David begot Solomon Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And Solomon begot Rehoboam. Now I want you to notice that principally these are the names of kings as we go through this section. Because it's important for you to understand that during this time, that was where the focus was. And so generationally, first we see back to Abraham. Now we're going to see in David's time, the focus was on the kingship. And so we have the old covenant, we now have the kingship, and we're going to have the new covenant here in just a minute. And Solomon begot Rehoboam, and Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa, and Asa begot Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begot Joram. And Joram begot Uzziah, and Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. 
Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah, and Josiah begot Jeconiah, and his brothers about the time they were carried away into Babylon. And so now we have this second group of 14 people, and you're going to notice something very unusual here. Right at the end, Jeconiah is mentioned here at the end. He is also mentioned at the beginning of the next group of people. Why is that? Because in Jewish history, there were two separate nations, one prior to their being carried away into Babylon and the other after they, were, they came back from Babylon. And so Jeconiah is here mentioned twice because he literally has two places, one in the history before and one in the history after. And so Matthew, again, making that tie because if there is not a return, a remnant remaining, then the prophecies of Isaiah are null and void. If there's no remnant coming back from Babylon that carries the kingship back to Jerusalem, then that prophecy goes unfulfilled. And so here, Jeconiah, even, even though he was cursed of God, he's used to carry on in a sovereign way the lineage necessary to provide both a king and a Messiah. Tremendously important stuff. Because Jesus has to come from both the kingly line and from the messianic line. I want you to also notice that in this list, that if you were going to write your family's history, would you include any of the black sheep? You would kind of leave out, like Uncle Bob, who was arrested 47 times. Like, I have an uncle that's like that. He's a convicted felon, like, 40 times over. And, you know, we just kind of leave Uncle Gary out of the family tree, usually, you know. Just like we don't, it's like, don't really want anybody to know that we actually have people like that in our family. Matthew doesn't do that. Because you know what? In this list of kings, there's a whole bunch of evil guys. There's a bunch of guys that if I were writing my family history, I would have left them out. If it was just for historical content. It's not. It's there because you've got to be able to trace Jesus all the way back to David and back to Abraham. And you know what? When you get to Ahaz, who is an evil king, when you, when you get to Manasseh, whom ultimately would have Isaiah the prophet sawn in two, you can't leave them out. Because if you leave them out, the lineage isn't complete. And so he puts them in there. So we know that he's not trying to protect the people and give this glorious story of all of these wondrous things that transpired so Israel could be painted as the Messiah itself. We know that's not true. And so when a Jewish person comes to you and says, well, you know, I believe that Isaiah 52:53 was written about us, the Jewish people, you say, then why did they include Ahaz in the genealogies in Matthew? Why is that there? Because he'd have to be pure in order for your way to be the right way. He would have to be without spot and without blemish in order for you to be the representation. Why is he listed there? You see, Matthew was meticulous in making sure that those people were there. And so then after they were brought back from Babylon, Jeconiah begot Sheatil, and Sheatil begot Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begot Abud, and Abud begot Elakim, and Eliakim begot Azor, and Azor begot Zadok, and Zadok Achim, and Achim Elihud. And Elihud begot Eleazar, and Eleazar Matan, and Matan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, and Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And so all of the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. And so as Matthew lays this out, he says, Okay, now I've given you absolute empirical evidence that you can trace the lineage of this one Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh is salvation. You can trace him all the way back to Abraham. Taking the period of the Abrahamic covenant, the period of the Davidic covenant, and the period that would become the new covenant, and saying, you know what? We can take it through all of those covenantial periods right back to God's original promise to Abraham. 
And we're going to now see how this man, Jesus, who is called the Christ, or called Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, we can see exactly how this is now going to happen. And so he unfolds it. You see, his human heredity had to be established. You know, it's interesting, when you look at this genealogy, this is such an example of God's grace, because in that day and time, women were not included in genealogies, ever. just didn't happen. The inheritance was always passed on through the man. And so to list these women, Tamar, Rahab was a harlot. The wife of Uriah the Hittite, here's someone who's caught in adultery. God is saying, you know what, it isn't about the name. It's not about how you got there. It isn't that you can actually trace the lineage. I'm going to make that really, really clear because I'm going to include some women who normally don't even count. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? Remember that little statement at the end? Besides women and children? There was 5,000 men. They counted. Well, there was also probably more than 10,000 women and children. But they're just listed in this little blurb. So Matthew, being a Jew, would have no reason to do this unless he was making an absolute statement about something in this particular lineage. That God wasn't concerned about the Jewishness of the lineage. He was concerned about the Messiahship of the lineage. And so it had to be intact. What a marvelous picture of God's grace. These four ladies being listed in there. Very often, quite honestly, most people skip over this list. But you have Tamar listed here. You have Rahab, who's listed here, a spy. A woman who was not greatly thought of. Bathsheba. What a glorious picture. Now, it's interesting, as we look at this, now we're going to take a look at a couple of Old Testament scriptures. Turn over to Genesis 49.10. I want to try and close this up because we're going to look at his, look at the virgin birth next week. We're going to look at Emmanuel next week. We want to finish up this week by looking at Jesus, who is called the Christ. I want you to look at this very, very, very closely. And you're going to see exactly why this list of names is so important. Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from what tribe? Judah. Who did David come from? Judah. Nor the lawgiver given from between his feet until Shiloh comes. You know what that means? You know what the word Shiloh means? Take a guess. The Messiah, the peaceful one. The rule of Israel will not depart until Shiloh comes. When did the kingly empire of Judah end? The year AD 70. When the, when the Roman conqueror Titus destroyed Jerusalem, no more kingly line has ever sat on the throne until Shiloh comes, until Jesus came. There has not been a king in Israel since that day. But, look what it says. Nor the law giver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be an obedience of the people. Who are they supposed to be obedient to? The Messiah. Moses is laying out here, there's going to be one that's going to come out of the tribe of Judah, who will come, and it will be him upon whom all of this will hang. And his name is going to be the Messiah, the Peaceful One. This was written 1,560 years, approximately, before Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. I'll give you one more. We'll look at this one real quickly. Just flip a couple pages over to Exodus chapter 3. I want to show you why this lineage is so important. Because the great I Am who speaks out of this burning bush is none other than a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Jesus speaking to Moses. He said, moreover, in verse 6, 
He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face and was afraid to look. And the Lord said, he goes on to speak to them, ministers to them. I have surely seen the oppression of, the oppression of my people. He ministers to them. He says, that are in Egypt and heard their cry. So he tells them, I've seen it. I know what's going on. Jesus has seen it. He knows what's going on. And go to skip down to verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and what that I should bring the children of Israel out? Then Moses said in verse 13, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name and what shall I say to them? And then God, notice his title, Jehovah says, I am who I am. That's who you're going to tell them has sent you. I am the past. I am the present. I am the future. I am everything. And all of human history is tied up in my name. The past, the present, and the future. God tells them to say, Jesus sent you. Not God the Father. He could have said, tell them I sent you. He doesn't say that, does he? He could have said, tell them Yahweh sends you. Tell them Jehovah sends you. But he takes great care to make his name known to them through the writings of Moses. I am who I am. The totality of the Trinity is given here absolutely in the person of Jesus Christ. He says, tell them I am that I am sent you. Now flip over to Isaiah and we're going to finish up here. Chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 6 and 7. You see, this is the reason that this is so important. That this unpronounceable list of names in the beginning of Matthew that we would like to skip over and just say, well, Jesus came from these guys. This is why this is so important. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, the natural birth of the one who would be the Messiah. And unto us a son is given, both his human heredity and his deity, listed by Isaiah the prophet, probably in the year 685 or 686 B.C. Nearly 700 years before the death of Christ. And the government will be upon his shoulder. The government of all of mankind is going to be on the shoulder of one individual. One alone. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What was that name back in Genesis 49? Messiah. Prince of Peace. That's what his name's going to be. So now here another 600, 700 years later, Isaiah says, when he comes, and then to make it all drive home, he says this, for the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Jesus will bring ultimate peace to all of mankind when the Messiah comes upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it, establish it in judgment and in justice from that time forward, even forever, for the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. You see, when we identify that lineage of David... When we identify the lineage of Abraham, we identify the lineage of Jesus and we trace it back and you say, you know what? That's the everlasting government that's going to be bounded in peace that will have to be traced back to David all the way up into Abraham. When Isaiah wrote these words, when Jesus came, it was a done deal. That's why Matthew's genealogy is so important. 
Because when we can look at that and say, you know what? I can trace my Messiah all the way back to Abraham, and thereby the promises given to him, thereby the words of Moses in Genesis are true, thereby the words of Isaiah the prophet are true, thereby the words of Moses in Exodus are true. We have a Messiah. And to the end of his government, there will be no end. And he's going to come back and establish that kingdom here on earth. And he's going to take his church out of it. We ought to be excited about the Messiah. I pray that we get a hunger to see who he really is. Because you know what? God didn't leave us with some ethereal kind of weird book that you have to have a degree in theology to understand. These texts are clear. They they weren't left up. We don't have to know English, Greek, and Hebrew in order to understand this. I can tell you emphatically from studying the original language that what this says in English is exactly what it said in Hebrew and in Greek and in Aramaic. The Messiah came. He hung on the cross and he died. And he's coming back. And the end of his government, which this book says will never end, will never end. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we just thank you that, Lord, you knew our propensity for trying to disprove your works and your ways. And, Lord, that in your sovereignty, you instructed by the power of your Holy Spirit, your servant Matthew, to make these things so totally clear that this is indeed the genealogy of Jesus, who is the Christ. Lord, you are a Messiah, you are a King, and you did come, and you have come, and you have provided salvation for all who would believe. And so, Lord, this morning we pray as we begin this journey through your Holy Scriptures, that, Lord, you would enliven our hearts, cause us to have a hunger for your Word. Lord, that we would be Berean students, Lord just searching the Scriptures daily that we might know You just a little bit better. And so, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its power to destroy and to tear down the strongholds of the enemy as men would come against us in our minds, Lord, as they would seek to boil down our relationship to You with just what we can think. That, Lord, Your Word is true. It's beyond our knowing. Lord, it's beyond our thinking but it is absolutely infallible. And so, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We bless you. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we close in song?